Welcome to Backstage at Upstage, a presentation of Upstage Lung Cancer, which uses the performing arts to raise awareness and funding for lung cancer research. Here's your host, the founder and president of Upstage Lung Cancer, Hildy Grossman. Hi, I'm Hildy Grossman, and we're so excited to have you with us today backstage at Upstage. My friend Jordan is here to introduce our guests. Thank you, Hildy. Today's topic is an important one, young people and cancer. So our guests today include Tony Adario, the CEO of Adario Lung Cancer Medical Institute, an expert MD on the subject, Dr. Barbara Gitlis, and a beautiful young lady named Corey Wood, who's been living with lung cancer now for several years. Welcome, everybody. Today's podcast is about a subject that most people have never considered, that young people can be diagnosed with lung cancer. Most people think it's a disease only of older people who smoke. Every year, a couple of thousand Americans younger than 40 years old receive the stunning news that they have lung cancer, even though they don't have the usual risk factors for the disease. My first guest, Corey Wood, is a wonderful woman, an athlete who um, has an incredible story to share with you. So, Corey, we're really grateful to have you here. We'd love you to tell your amazing story, and why don't you just take it away? Thanks, Hildy. So I was diagnosed at the ripe age of 22. It was about two weeks after college graduation. I'm now 29, so it's been almost seven years of treatment. But I was a marathon runner. I was very healthy, did not see it coming at all didn't run the family, wasn't exposed to any crazy chemicals or anything that would lead to something like this. Um, The way I found out was also kind of odd. The only symptom I had was this small flash in my right eye. And I was going in to get my contact prescription renewed and thought I would just mention that. And the doctor did see a small bump behind my eye and he said if it grows we might be concerned if it doesn't we're not going to be concerned so i came back a month later it grew i was then forwarded to a eye specialist and it was this doctor who didn't like the color of this bump behind my right eye and he was actually the one to have me get a full body pet scan which I later learned is very unusual (laughs) considering I didn't have any other symptoms. So in some ways kind of lucky that he pushed for Mm. me to get that scan. And even at the time, I remember thinking, I I don't remember thinking this could be cancer. I just was kind of going through the steps and um, took his advice and got the scan and it came back lit up all throughout Um, Still didn't think it was cancer, but had a needle biopsy and lo and behold, stage four lung cancer and just obviously devastating, super unexpected. Uh, I had a genetic test shortly after that. that That's what found the ROS1 mutation. So I've been on some combination of targeted therapy, chemotherapy, radiation ever since and still consider myself lucky in a lot of ways um, and definitely hopeful 
but it's still even to this day unexpected. Yeah, I'm sure it was just a tremendous shock. Um, and I'm sure the doctor at some level was shocked, not necessarily that it was cancer, but that it was lung cancer. Yes. And I remember my primary care physician almost not being able to explain the diagnosis because I think she was just as baffled. And so it was a very awkward meeting, um, her trying to explain what this diagnosis was without really understanding it herself. And then from there, I went to see an oncologist who was better able to explain what was happening and what this meant. Um, but even that experience was kind of surreal. Your symptom, if, as it were, was this just this little flash of light in your eye. That seems very unusual. Yes, that was very bizarre. And so that turned out to be this tiny metastasis, just a couple millimeters big, that had traveled up from the lung and just landed right behind my right eye, causing that really small flash of light that led to this entire experience. Yeah, it's amazing. And, you know, without that, it's like, who knows at what point or, you know, you would have, have learned what, what actually was going on. It's just amazing. And again, not only that young people can get lung cancer, but that the symptoms aren't what you might expect, you know, a serious cough. And Barbara can speak some more about that. But, but again, it's this oddball symptom. I've heard, you know, shoulder pain and other kinds of things that just don't seem that they're related to lung cancer. Absolutely. Yeah. I was running even throughout my diagnosis, like while getting that needle biopsy, as soon as that was covered up, I was still out running, um, didn't feel anything else, anything else throughout my body. So it is scary to think of at what point would I have felt something and would it have been too late to even do anything? I, it's kind of scary to even think about that. Exactly. And so you were a marathon runner, right? Yeah. Now I'm more into my Peloton. I'm one of those nuts that is Peloton obsessed. So I'm still pretty up, try to stay in shape and um, keep up. But yeah, at the time I had done eight marathons and um, always considered myself to be like an athlete, eat well, and thought I would live forever type feeling. So it was just pretty baffling. Um, and I still wonder, how did this happen? <laughs> exactly. These uh, happenstances are just un unexplainable. As you say, sometimes, you know, it's in the family or there's some other things that you might expect, but but this just came like a curveball. I'm also a lung cancer survivor. Mine was found by complete accident with no symptoms. And that was the same thing. It's like, well, wait, I'm healthy, I'm active, and I'm vigorous. How could this possibly have happened? It's just unexplainable. So, yeah, I understand that. Corey, I am exceedingly proud to have you on this podcast with Hildy, and uh, I love Hildy to death, and I'm so excited about you being here. And most of us are thrilled to hear that it's been seven years and you look terrific. What's your state of health today? And uh, talk a little bit about your treatment regimen and how that's been going. Sure. So one thing that has helped me so much is being able to continue to do the things I did before diagnosis. I can still do them now and have been able to do them throughout treatment. And I credit a lot of that to these targeted therapies and these more recent advancements. So I had the ROS1 mutation 
and I started off on targeted therapy. As of right now, I'm on lorlatinib, which is a newer targeted therapy for ROS1. It is my third targeted therapy, and I'm doing it along with chemotherapy, and I have that every three weeks. I'm lucky in that I don't have many side effects, and that might have to be or have something to do with being young, but I'm still able to work out, keep up with friends, do pretty much every activity that my friends do, I can still do. I can go for hikes and that has helped me immensely when it comes to the psychological part of this disease is being able to do those things and somewhat convince myself that I have a normal life. That has been um, a huge help. That's fantastic. Barbara, um, as an oncologist and a researcher, somebody who's encountered some special people, just just like Corey, um, really extraordinary young people. Can you tell us some more about the challenges of diagnosing people with, uh, with uh, lung cancer? Sure. Um, first of all, it's delightful to be here with all of you. Um, Corey, you look fabulous. It's been a while since I've, I've seen you. I get updates from, you know, Bonnie and Tony every now and then. So I'm, I'm so overwhelmingly pleased to see you doing so well. And um, I'm also a Peloton nut. So we <laughs> share that, that in uncommon. So, so Hildy, you know, as, as Tony will tell you, you know, and, and Bonnie, we um, have done a actual uh, prospective look at uh, young people uh, defined as less than age 40 that develop lung cancer, non-small cell lung cancer, small cell lung cancer, you know, just to, you know, really see, you know, who these people are. And, you know, in order to capture uh, and find uh, these people, because it is rare, probably, you know, one to 2% of, of all lung cancers. We did some, you know, very creative things like set up a, a, um, a, a remote consent uh, through the through a website, um, we we captured blood tests and questionnaires all remotely. So you know, as Bonnie likes to say, you know, we really brought the research uh, uh, to the patient. So that was you know very pioneering. You know, this is five six years ago. You know, when we started this all, and you know, it, it served as a platform now for for many other groups. But you know, what what Corey is describing, you know, to get to your question is 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 the uh, the theme that I heard from so many uh, of these people diagnosed with uh, lung cancer uh, at a young age. Um, you know, we entered, we entered about 133 people. I uh, spoke to the majority of them. Some of them came from other sites like uh, Jeff Oxnard at, at Harvard, Harvard and, uh, and, and University of Turin in Italy, but the ones that came either from my institution at the time, USC or online, I spoke to them. And this theme of not being diagnosed for many, many months in, in many of the cases, unless it was just so obvious, you know, and hit people over the head, you know, when they went to see their doctors, this theme of delay of diagnosis. And, and it's not the doctor's fault necessarily. I mean, you just don't think of, oh, lung cancer, you know, someone has pneumonia, you know, a 23 year old has pneumonia or a headache, you know, you don't automatically, you know, knee jerk and say, oh, you know, it must be lung cancer. Uh, but you know, this is an all not uncommon theme that I heard from so many uh, of them. And you know, unusual presentations, you know, women who had just given birth to children, just not recovering and not feeling well, 
Um, the same thing, you know, athletes, marathon runners that were just feeling just a little more short of breath than usual, you know, very subtle, you know, maybe yes, because they're young and able to handle um, uh, some of these symptoms and, and the reduced reserve of, of their lungs, etc. We'll get back to the podcast in just a moment. Upstage Lung Cancer exclusively uses music and the performing arts to get the word out about lung cancer. Through concerts and activities, Upstage helps fund much-needed research. As the saying goes, find it, treat it, beat it. Please subscribe to this podcast series and tell your friends. Oh, and if you'd like to join our efforts, consider a donation of any amount at upstagelungcancer.org. And now, back to the podcast. I was just thinking, you know, we don't want to scare our audience. No, no. But the point is to really give power to your own voice for each of us. So that if you have something going on, you now know that this is a possibility. It may not be a probability, but it's a possibility. And if you have any concern, you have to just push for this. And now you have a story to tell the doctor, which is you heard this podcast and you know, this is, is, this is a possibility. Yes. It's still exceedingly rare. It's very incredibly rare to have lung cancer diagnosed at such a young age, but you know, it does exist. And yes, we don't want to scare people. You know, pneumonias are usually pneumonias. Headaches are usually headaches, you know, but if they don't go away, you know, and it's also up to the person, you know, to follow up with their healthcare providers. And yes, as you say, you know, take control of, of their health and make sure that they're being treated properly and followed up properly. I met with a woman who was a young lung cancer patient who had another remarkable story. There was lung cancer in the family. Her mother had died of lung cancer. Her grandmother died of lung cancer. She had an aunt or an aunt. I know that I'm living in New England for a million years, an aunt who died of lung cancer. And so it was just rampant in the family. And she went to her doctor with a cough, a significant cough. And the doctor said, well, even though it's in the family, can't be lung cancer. And so she was put off for, I can't remember the time interval, but at least a year. And so by the time she was diagnosed, it was an advanced stage. So that's why my own personal goal is to always give people a voice. If you do go to a practitioner who's not listening to you or minimizes or saying you're you're making a mountain out of a molehill, time to look for someone else to to talk to because it's important to have a voice. Tony, you started the whole uh, ball rolling with alchemy, the Dario Lung Cancer Medical Institute some number of years ago. And we've partnered, Upstage Lung Cancer has partnered with you for about seven years now with spring concerts. And um, I'm hoping you will tell the audience about alchemy and the research on young lung people. Yeah, and, and we certainly appreciate your support that you've given us uh, over the years. Uh, just uh, on the, the initiation of uh, alchemy, uh, as I assume many of your listeners know, my wife, Bonnie, was diagnosed with stage, uh, stage 3B. And the process we went through was uh, difficult to get any information back then. That's uh, prior to 2006. So she started the Bonnie J. Dario Foundation. And as we evolved and we looked at other things that we could do to try and help, we had a summit of a number of the key opinion leaders from the U.S. and from uh, Western Europe, 
and we asked them to come prepared to answer one question. If money was no object, if we could help you raise money, what's the single thing you would do to advance the cause of lung cancer survival? And uh, it was a day and a half of people going back and forth. And at the end of the day and a half, Harvey passed from NYU stood up and said, what we need is a national virtual lung cancer institute with a centralized repository for blood and tissue uh, where we could share our data, we could share our specimens and have that managed by an honest broker. So that's how Alchemy was started. Our first, our first study, uh, and it's hard to think of this right now, but back in 2008, there was not really a widely shared repository for highly annotated stage four lung cancer specimens. So we were really one of the first entities to do that. And so that's how Alchemy got started. Um, and today we have uh, roughly 26 institutions in the United States and Europe where we're trying to foster collaboration amongst those institutions. Part of the push for Alchemy also was to break down these silos uh, of information uh, that seemed to be evident back then and allow uh, investigators to talk with one another, work with one another, and we would try and be the impetus and the clinical uh, coordinator for those various studies. One of the things I've noticed over the years since I was diagnosed in 2007 is that there's just a tremendously a growing interest among researchers of sharing information. I know when I was diagnosed, I, I remember saying, gee, maybe we could have a panel. We could have different researchers talking about what they're doing and clinicians, and we could share information. And I remember so clearly at the time, the message to me was, oh, uh, no, no, that, you know, that's their own research. They're publishing. They're not going to want to share what they're doing. I know that over time, this kind of isolation and protection of your turf has definitely eased up a lot. Do you, do you find that to be true, Barbara? Yeah, I mean, everything that Tony said is very true. You know, even again, when we first proposed this trial, you know, the legal department at USC was like, you want to do what with whom and how are you getting this data? What they're consenting remotely? You know, you're going to be looking at, you know, scan results and, and, and I'm like, yes. You know, this is the trial. This is what we're consenting to. You know, we're breaking down these silos where it's a rare disease. How else are we going to study it? So, but like I said, these silos have been breaking down and, and we find that, you know, this is a, a great way uh, in all of our conferences, et cetera, you know, to, to really move the needle is to have cooperation and, and sharing of data. And, and I have to say kudos to Tony and Body and all, all these other uh, patient advocacy organizations because they have been key to this. They have absolutely pushed for it and it's just, it's just been fabulous to be able to get the data that they, that they are, are, are providing. You know, Corey mentioned something about what Ross won a mutation. For those in our audience who don't know what that means, a mutation, although we're hearing about it a little bit, <laughs> about mutations with COVID, uh, with viral mutations, but what but what does that mean and, and how does that help? Yeah, I, I can I can speak to that. And and that's also what makes young lung cancer so unusual. So uh, over the last decade or two, we have discovered that some people's cancer harbor what we call driver mutations. 
that is a, it is a mutation that is, we don't know why it happened, uh, but it is driving that person's cancer and it's universal uh, throughout many, many people's cancer. So there, are, uh, let's talk about three key mutations, one of them being ROS1, the other one being ALK, and another one being EGFR, epidermal growth factor receptor. And uh, it seems that mutations in these, in these, uh, uh, these mutations that driving the cancer, they can be, they can be druggable and they can be discovered uh, in the tissue and now even in the blood uh, from circulating tumor DNA. Um, so these are very important. And uh, ROS1 is very rare. If you look at all lung cancers diagnosed around the world, you know, it, may, it might be 1% of non-small cell lung cancer adenocarcinomas, but it's, you know, eight to 10% in these young populations. You know, likewise, ALK is, is rare, maybe 5%, and it was about 35% or 40% in, in these young lungs. So it seems that um, young lung cancer harbors these drivers uh, up with two or three times the number that we see in the general population of people diagnosed with lung adenocarcinoma. So whereas if you look at all lung adenocarcinoma diagnosis, maybe 35, 40% of them will have uh, one of these driver mutations if, if you look carefully. Uh, and now if these young lung, it's, it's 80 plus percent of them will have one of these uh, uh, driver mutations. So yes, it is a very, you know, interesting uh, a disease, interesting and rare disease. And what better to find out what causes these mutations than to look at an enriched population of people that have these mutations. And Tony can speak about the next trial that we're embarking on called Epidemiology of Young Lung Cancer. And so we're, we're building on the Genomics of Young Lung Cancer uh, study and now looking at the see if we can determine the why, why do these develop? So the epidemiology study is going to look at 250 patients that were diagnosed under 40 with one of these cohorts. There's a very detailed survey that looks at all the environmental health um, uh, hazardous exposure and tries to evaluate across these 250 individuals is any is there anything that can be gleaned anything consistent anything unique in the different cohorts so that we might be able to identify uh and and uh identify a way to preserve or detect this earlier so we don't have to wait to a someone gets to, to stage four. We're also working on a correlative study with Dana-Farber Institute and the Broad where we're going to do in-depth next generation sequencing to see if we can possibly also identify some sort of germline characteristic that would be key to identify why these young lung uh, cancer patients, maybe there's something from an ancestral background that is driving the problem. First of all, this will be just a profoundly important trial for young lung patients and for all lung patients. Because, you know, what I was saying before is that these young lung cancer uh, patients are incredibly enriched for these driver mutations. And when epidemiologists look to find out, you know, why this is happening, there's no greater tool than a population that is heavily enriched, heavily enriched in, these, in these mutations. So, you know, we're going to look through questionnaires to find out, you know, was there some type of exposure that we don't know about? 
um, that can give us a clue as to why that can't that cell, that normal cell in the body took on one of these driver mutations. You know, what caused that? So this will be useful for, for all patients with lung cancer to figure this out because we'll be able to study it in such an enriched population. Uh, plus, as Tony was saying, you know, we're going to get blood draws to, to look at other investigational uh, a type of research uh, to look at maybe there, there is something hereditary in there. Uh, but it would have to be very interesting and unusual because hereditary lung cancers are like profoundly, profoundly rare. Um, you know, unlike certain other cancers like colon and breast cancer, where there's a clear hereditary link. Uh, but like I said, looking in this enriched population, you know, we might find another needle in a haystack that we would never find by looking at just the broader lung cancer population. Which is what makes this so interesting and such an important area of study. Epidemiology, again, probably many of our all listeners know what epidemiology is, and some may have no idea, but basically epidemiologists, as you've been talking about, try to look for factors, why certain things occur in a population. So they can be good things, and they can be disease things. They could be all kinds of things. So is it based on um, families? Is it based on whether people live in a city or in a country? Is it based on uh, wealth? Is it based on other kinds of circumstances? So, so having an epidemiology study that looks at these kinds of biological factors um, that, that distinguish um, young people with lung cancer versus older people is uh, it's it's just part of filling in this gigantic puzzle of of cancer and in particular in lung cancer. So yeah. kudos for continuing this work, and that's why we continue to support this project. Right. It's like you know what the heck? Why should you know a, a young woman of in her twenties develop this mutation in one of her normal lung cancer cells that sets off lung cancer? Like what is going on here? And, and we have many of them and what is going on? And, you know, we hired a, a stable of epidemiologists and <laughs> to sort this out for us. And now, you know, we have this epidemi epidemiology of, of young lung cancer uh, a trial. Which is so exciting. Corey, you must um, wonder about that yourself. You know, as you said, why, why me? And so um, how are you feeling about this research going forward? Oh, it's very exciting. I would say it's the top question I get asked is, you know, did you smoke? Well, I was going to say that had first. to be number one. <laughs> <laughs> I did not. Um, and then the second question is, well, then how did this happen? And I just have to tell them no idea. So it's very exciting to have work like this being done just to give some clues. Very, very exciting for us youngins. I have one more question for you, Corey, and that is over the last seven years, uh, you've been, thank God, the, the beneficiary of some great science and great medicine. But what about support? Uh, do you connect with other people in your position, uh, other young people? And if so, how does that work? How has that been working? So Yes, I do. And Facebook has actually been a big help with that. And we have a Ross One Facebook group, and it's been super helpful emotionally, but also just when it comes to treatments, talking about, have you tried this drug? What were the side effects? What'd you do about the side effects? Um, people just sharing their journeys and 
it's throughout the world. So people are from all over. And it, since it is such a small group of us, it's really nice to connect and share our stories. And um, a lot of us are younger, like uh, Barbara said earlier. So that's been a great help, a great tool. And just seeing other patients live their lives has been super helpful. Um, I've met other young survivors through the Dario Foundation and seeing them continue to travel, live, it, it motivates me to keep going. And um, just kind of trying to get out there and live has been also really helpful and, and healthy for me. COVID has not helped that, but <laughs> excited to travel again because that's helped me a lot throughout this. On, on that dimension, everybody's been in the same boat. And in some ways it kind of helps you know, you try to think, is there anything good about COVID in a worldwide pandemic? And there's not much, but maybe one of the things that it does do is it kind of pulls us together and says, you know, people get sick and they get sick all over the world. And this is not just uh, an isolated instance. And so if there's any kind of empathy or understanding or feeling of connection to other people, Jordan's question is so good because um, ultimately just to feel like you're not alone, you're not the only person, and there are other people who um, are experiencing this and who will love you and you will feel the connection to even if they're strangers. So that's, that's a wonderful outcome. I think there's one other outcome, positive outcome from, from COVID and probably Barbara could uh, give more information on this, but the willingness to use telemedicine, the willingness of some of the internal review boards to lessen some of the very strict requirements they had on execution of studies. So we've seen that to some degree uh, as, a, as, a as a benefit. And as Barbara said, we try to, and we have some other studies going on right now, where we're trying to take the study to the patient. And in fact, we'll send a phlebotomist on this particular study. We'll send a phlebotomist to the patient's house to collect their blood if we have to, if they don't want to go into an institution. Right, that's not a vampire. That's somebody who takes blood, right? That's correct. <laughs> yeah, so I think there are a lot of changes and a lot of changes the way medicine is being handled. And it's like all things, what is it? All things go around, come around. You know, when, when I was a very little girl, um, if I got super sick, my pediatrician came to the house. Whoever heard of the, I, you know, probably most of you people listening today are saying, well, what? The doctor came to your house, but, but yeah, it happened. So now we're, we're, we're in a different, more virtual phase of the doctor coming to your house. So if you're lucky enough to have a computer um, and, um, and you have a good physician, then you can do that um, virtually. So in any case, I, I want to thank all of you, what what a wonderful group of, of just lovely, dedicated people. I'm glad to know you all, and I'm glad that your voices will be heard by other people in the community. And we hope if this just reaches one person who winds up getting an early diagnosis, um, will be more than a booming success. If there's anything else that you want to punctuate our call with, uh, our, our, our podcast with? So uh, if I could just make one comment on the epidemiology study, which will actually launch 
on February 23rd at 7 a.m. in the morning, uh, we already have 22 individuals that have asked for information so that they can participate as part of the study. And we have a number of individuals who beta tested the study and are already engaged. So we're excited about that. We're excited about the enthusiasm of the patients. You know, taking a long study is, is not necessarily something in the morning that you want to get up and answer 200 questions. But the patients that we've talked to are really excited about this. And as Corey said, to try and find out why, you know, why did this happen? Yeah, that's, that's wonderful. So good luck. I'm wishing you just, you know, wonderful, successful outcomes. I hope, you know, learn a, a lot from this next study. We look forward to coming back and speaking to you about it, maybe. Uh, absolutely. You're always welcome. It would be a pleasure. And Corey, you're always welcome. Yeah. So, um, yeah, thank you so very much. And Jordan, as always, um, my fabulous co-host on this podcast series. So thank you. Uh, stay well, everybody. Stay safe. Uh, and we look forward to the next podcast. So join us again next month. To find out how you can join Upstage Lung Cancer in raising awareness and funding to beat lung cancer, visit our website, upstagelungcancer.org. We invite you to subscribe and download our podcast available on all platforms. And we love reviews and ratings. After all, we're showbiz people. There's more entertainment and inspiration to come on the next podcast episode of Backstage at Upstage.